happening now. We'd like to welcome our viewers from across North America and around the world. This is the EdTech Situation Room, episode 82 for Wednesday, January the 17th, 2018. My name is Wes Fryer, and I am joining you from frigid Oklahoma City, which was six degrees this morning when I uh, went to work, and I think we're a little bit cooler than Missoula, Montana, which um, since we've been watching Stranger Things, if you're a fan, seems like we're living in the upside down. But joining me as always is Jason Neifer. Jason, how are things in balmy Missoula tonight? Oh, uh, they're good. They're, it's currently 34 degrees Fahrenheit in fabulous Missoula, Montana, which is pretty warm for a January day here in the Garden City of Western Montana. And we are apparently looking forward to some snow next week, but um, you know, it's hard to say. We're going to probably hit the low 50s. There's actually rain forecasted for tonight. Um, and then tomorrow, some additional rain. And so who knows? It's a weather wonderland here in fabulous Big Sky Country. It is. Well, um, I am the director of technology at the Cassidy School. And um, Jason, y- you're you're still hanging on there. Are, have people come back to the University of Montana to, to join your team? Um, meaning, I mean, meaning at work, like, weren't you, weren't you guys kind of lone folks on oh. campus for a little while <laughs> over the holidays? I mean, it was we like were, the, yeah, the, like, the, we the, were. The, the professorial cadre doesn't exactly hang out and, uh, and work the holiday shift. No, that's exactly the case. And we were kind of doing our best Tom Bodet. We were keeping the light on for people, uh, so they could come back to, uh, the University of Montana. Yeah. Faculty were actually, there's a retreat in the college where my, my department is located at tomorrow and then classes start next week. And actually, I found out that I'm going to be teaching a class this semester. Uh, Mike Agostinelli, who's my partner at Crime and the Digital Academy, are going to teach the EdTech class. Uh, one of the sections of the EdTech class is coming semester um, as they're kind of shifting folks around to make the best use of, of professorial resources. And so we've been syllabus planning. And so I get to, in my last semester of working as a doctoral student, I will also be teaching. So I am kind of doing the, the doctoral lifestyle here, a little overcommitted and, and, and under timed. So we'll see and, what that process under, looks like. And underpaid, perhaps. Well, yes, yeah. true. I, I, it's an adjunct gig. And uh, <laughs> the, the department head, when he asked me to, to, to consider teaching the course, reminded me of the low pay. And uh, and I said, well, it's the adjuncting gig, right? Luckily, I have a day job to keep me, you know, in high-end booze and cigars. But, uh, you know, we'll, we'll call that <laughs> good for the semester. So right. um, lots of interesting things going on in the tech world. Lots of interesting discussions right now. And it's interesting. Both Wes and I this week brought in some links. And by the way, for those of you interested, you can see all the links to all the stories we refer to on this week's episode at our website, edtechsr.com. Um, but the both Wes and I uh, moved a little philosophical this week, I think. And so um, we're excited to talk about a number of different issues. And then to throw in some spice, we've got some true nerdy things we can speak about as well. So, Dr. Fryer, where would you like to start off this evening? Well, um you know, actually, I think I'd like to start off with the Facebook feed because I think this is a pretty big deal. And um, I'll, I'll just preface it by saying, hey, last night I finally I was going to write a blog post. And I, I thought, why well, you got to write this on Facebook and, and unfollowed 52 people? And, you know, what's going on? Well, uh, Facebook has announced that they are making some major changes to the news feed. And so uh, excellent article in Wired Magazine on January the 13th, uh, Facebook's Adam Masseri on why you'll see less video, more from friends. Um, other articles um, that I read on this were the Monday note, which is actually a personal, I think it's a personal blog, but it's a great article. Uh, Facebook is done with quality journalism. Deal with it. And then the, uh, that was from uh, January 15th. And then the Wall Street Journal on January 12th said one website's Facebook apocalypse is another opportunity to shine. And basically, um, this is my interpretation of it. You know, Facebook has come under a lot of very warranted criticism with the election and the ways in which fake news ran rampant and their inability or perhaps unwillingness, but I, but I think it had to do with, you know, sheer volume. One of these articles says that Facebook's got about a billion pieces of content, you know, that's shared on their network daily. So they can't hire, you know, even if they're using mechanical, what is it called? What's that mechanical Turk or what's the, you know, when you're paying people fractions of a penny to, to do little menial tasks. I mean, the quantity is just enormous. They have to use algorithms. So they have been criticized for not 
basically chiming in on uh, the whole fake news thing and, and, and being a gatekeeper. And so I think there's two sides to this. Um, the Wired article with Adam Masseri, you know, talks about how Zuckerberg wants Facebook to be a place where the positive comes out, where people, you know, come together and where community is built. You know, Zuckerberg went on a nationwide tour. He was actually here in Oklahoma. Uh, I read an article on his last, you know, stop and and he was like having dinner at people's you know homes and surprised at how much civic groups and church and other things played into the lives of the common people not living in the ivory tower of silicon valley and so and you know people have had rumors about him running for president hey we heard oprah might run for president right after the golden globes but anyway he he wants to promote community and and uh you know obviously wants to still make money and make facebook viable so there perhaps are, are as there often are a couple sides to the story i think one of them is this definitely true is facebook just can't hire enough people to be able to gatekeep the quantity of content that's being published and number 2 it's exceptionally difficult to ascertain if you wanted to whitelist folks like oh this is now legitimate and this is not and so um, Facebook is now going to be de-emphasizing and devaluing news links and is going to be emphasizing things that are creating um, uh, engagement among users, especially with family and friends. And so that's really going to favor comments as well as likes, and it's going to, to de-emphasize. And so uh, I've probably told the story before, and, and it is a joke, but it's true, <clears throat> that my wife several years ago threatened to unfriend me on Facebook because of all the drivel that I was sharing because I, I at the time was cross-posting and from Twitter. And I, yep. I kind of just felt, felt like, oh, Google+, Plus, Facebook, Twitter, they're all the same. I'd love to share stuff. I'm going to just share all this, you know, all these things. And um, anyway, it, it has become for me a much more personal place as far as sharing family updates. You know, I do, you know, and if, if you're here, we've got a couple of live viewers out there. Um, you know, I, I definitely do promote the show and, and the occasional blog posts that I write now I'll put out there, but, but I'm not sharing tons of article links. And so anyway, I have uh, for a number of probably years, but also with all the talk we've done about surveillance and Facebook and what they know. And, you know, I've, I've changed some of the ways that I use the platform, uh, not, you know, liking and checking in and all that stuff as much. So I've decided right. to, really embrace the change that Facebook is bringing. Um, and if I, if I honestly just don't know somebody and I know, you know, different people virtually, but there's a, a fairly substantial number of folks that I've just followed because they're into ed tech and they had so many other followers in common, et cetera. And I just decided to go ahead and unfollow a lot of those folks and possibly, and this is what I would ask for your advice on possibly, uh, maybe not make a public profile, maybe make a private profile. So Jason, what do you think of all of this? And is this going to have an impact, um, you know, on the, on the ways you use Facebook personally? Sure. Well, I mean, I've always been very careful about Facebook. And one of the reasons why is that there's a couple of reasons. First, uh, I, I do think people are sometimes overly sad on Facebook and share a little bit too much of, 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 of the, the, the trauma and the tragedies of their lives. And it, it's never been a place where personally I've wanted to share information like that. I've shared challenges. I've shared joys on Facebook with people that are, and I used to have a, I used to have a rule that I actually never friended anyone. I just waited pe for people to friend me. And, you know, so that the, for me, it, it's been a challenge to kind of figure out that ebb and flow. But this notion of turning Facebook more into the interpersonal relationships as opposed to a uh, well, I mean, the idea of maybe Facebook moving away from more being a news platform, if Facebook moving away from being a media platform or a publishing platform. It's a very interesting phenomenon. The thing that I can't wrap my brain around, though, is how that remains profitable. And I think about um, the book that the social network was based off of. It's called The Accidental Billionaires. And um, it was uh, an interesting look inside of this. And the movie treats it a little differently than the reality of the book. But one of the big questions that Facebook faced when it initially started was how to monetize. And the monetize question is not an, 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 an insubstantial 
one because, um, you know, there are a lot of startups and a lot of Silicon Valley companies that are popular with users that have no functional model for raising money. And then they become a tool that doesn't doesn't last. But Facebook makes billions of dollars in profit every year based on largely advertising. So the question that and there's been a lot of articles on the changes and evolution of Facebook. So what happens to advertising now and what happens to, um, you know, as a small business owner myself, as someone that works with nonprofit uh, to to advertise on Facebook? It's a very successful platform for me um, as a social media person uh, from a, an advertising standpoint. You know, how does that then work? And, 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 you know, there's been some answers to this. And I know Facebook has reached out a lot to Facebook advertisers to, to try to explain to them how they're evolving this process. But, you know, I, I, it's interesting to me. How do you maintain a really personalized connection system while not being able to, and I'll, I'll use the word here, exploit that for income? And that balance there, I think, is going to be somewhat critical in determining what this looks like in the upcoming months and years. And the key is really what will this look like for political advertising, right? Because yes. that was one of the most contentious things in the election were these very targeted ads that would be anti, um, you know, Clinton, uh, a lot of, of, of those. And, you know, things that would never go up on a billboard, you know, that in a, in a public place. But, you know, there was just literally hundreds if not thousands of different iterations of these ads being shown and the ways in which they were targeted. So nothing that I've read in these articles says that advertising is going away or diminishing. It sounds like, you know, news links that people are choosing to share in their feed as users are going to be de-emphasized. But what I think is going to be critical, and I just, I don't think we have these in the show notes, but I was, I'm listening to my Google Home now saying, got to be careful. Hey, G, you know, what's my, you know, good morning. What's my, what's my briefing. And they're saying, uh, there's a great podcast. I, I like to listen to usually a couple times a week now called the cyber wire, which is a cyber, cyber safety, cyber, cyber security podcast. They're saying that, uh, the CIA has basically fingered, uh, Russia as the source of the, of the, uh, was it, was it called the cyber brokers? The, the one, the something brokers that, you know, put out all of these tools and these, these hacking tools. And so in terms of the election that's coming up and, you know, midterm elections in the United States, there's, you know, reports of, the, uh, the the Russians evidently you know attempting to to continue meddling and hacking, and so I personally think that prob- that artificial intelligence is going to play a key role here. I don't think that it is matured to the point where it's going to be able to accurately discern, but I think Facebook is going to try and employ whatever you know AI algorithmic tools it can to bring to bear here, and and I would I would hazard an absolute guess it's not based on the articles, but just based on analysis that they're going to use algorithms to try and determine if the nature of an ad is political and then perhaps hopefully subject that to more scrutiny than they would say if we were, you know, advertising for a product or a known store or something like that. So I get how they don't want to say, Hey, you're a legit news source and we're whitelisted. You're not, you're blacklisted. Um, and we may talk a little bit about YouTube as well and some of the changes that, that they're making on monetization, which is to, to deal with some, you know, related things as well as some other issues. But I think that to take an educational uh, spin on this, uh, it's really important for us to, number one, be talking with students about this and to recognize the ways in which communication and, um, you know, advertising and political campaigning, all of these things are changing, right? And so it's not something I think that we, we should ignore. And I think that we need our students uh, writing for, even if it's for a class assignment, you know, audiences that we may not have been thinking about, you know, 10 years, 20 years ago and thinking about, um, you know, ways in which we're, you know, using images, we're using video, uh, we're using media to um, attempt to persuade and, and attempt to, it's that whole media literacy piece, right? Becoming more aware as citizens of how uh, we, how they, you know, students are, are being um, manipulated or are being influenced so that we'll be more aware of, of what's happening and have our, our eyes open. So do you think media literacy plays a significant role in the curriculum in Montana, Jason? And is that something that 
you hear people talking about much now, or is it is it just in the context of, of this fake news and that kind of discussion today? Uh, it was a really big deal in Montana 15 years ago, and so much so that uh, a lot of uh, particularly English language arts departments in the state of Montana, middle schools and high schools, were starting to adopt media literacy curriculum. My wife was briefly an English teacher um, uh, when we were starting teaching together, and she was big into media literacy and did a lot of things related to advertising literacy and, and message literacy. And it feels like that, uh, I don't know, it, 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 those lessons seemed uncouth maybe in, in the era of the Internet, right, when it's, in my mind, it's when it's needed the most. And I think, if anything, that for the longest while we had a, a very large group of educators, librarians, that were kind of warning us about the Internet. And I thought that some of those warnings were overwrought because I knew at one point that that, that good reference materials would get digitized and that at some point we would have sources of authority available to us on something like, you know, larger internet databases. But, you know, I, I think that, that that's really a, a, an answer to this. It's not going to fix everything, right? It's not going to uh, immediately make social media not a source for, of discontent in this regard, but it really is an important step to making sure that long to, or long term, I was, I was trying to mix the words long term and longitudinally, uh, long Long-term or, you know, long-termally, there is a real benefit to making sure that we're focusing on those pieces um, in these, um, 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 Changing. Uh, well, in, in the way we plan, yeah, you know, and, and, and the way we plan and, and deliver these pieces. So, you know, I'm, I'm excited. Um, I, I think that journalism and broadly needs, um, you know, our support in these times. I think that we are in an era where, um, Platforms are being challenged in this way. I, I, I wouldn't say that I'm totally uh, happy about Facebook moving away from journalism. So I do think it is a way to distribute mainstream journalism to the masses where it's convenient as opposed to, you know, uh, uh, sending people out to websites that may or may not get shared. But we're just going to see what it looks like. And, and I guess I would applaud uh, Mr. Zuckerberg and his team. I think they understand that if they don't make some changes, then Facebook's going to turn into what MySpace was 15 years ago, which was a dead space that wasn't really meeting the needs of its users. Well, and the changes are going to be made for them, right? I think that's yes. probably one of their greatest fears is regulators. And we had all those um, hearings in front of, of Senate yes. committees before Christmas. And so they want to self-regulate uh, much in the way that I think AT&T and other ISPs, you know, want to try to police themselves so that, you know, the government doesn't come in and screw stuff up. And there are legitimate concerns for government regulators who are always going to be several steps behind technology, you know, trying to come in and, and, fix things with regulation. But um, the other thought I have is that I think personally, we all need to be open to, you know, perhaps changing the ways that we're using different platforms and, and technologies. We've commented on the show before that it's, it's difficult at this point to imagine life without Twitter. Twitter is such a huge part of, of the learning landscape for so many educators, Jason and myself included. And, you know, Twitter is able to be shaped and, and, and shifted and channeled, you know, with other kinds of tools like Flipboard. And I, I still love to, you know, take a look. I, in fact, it's, it's not every day, but it's several times a week. I have a Twitter list of all the teachers at my school and I have a, a you know, magazine. It's not, it, I guess it's not a magazine, but it's a channel inside the Flipboard app, which I, I can get on my Android phone, but I usually look mostly on my iPad. And it's just great, you know, to be able to catch up with what people are sharing in that kind of, you know, local way. And uh, it really it, it is it's important in terms of helping me be aware and have conversations with people and and just it's part of that learning landscape. So anyway, I, I think it's good for us to be open to change. Some of these changes, obviously, some, you know, some of the things that were being said in this Monday Note article about, you know, Facebook's done with quality journalism, deal with it is, hey, they're a private company. You know, they um, can do what they want. They don't have an obligation to save journalism. And, um, you know, it's we're just like we see web tools and different kinds of things moving and morphing, uh, we're going to continue to see those kind of things change. And, and, and the door is open too, right. For folks to figure out how to reinvent journalism and also, you know, what other kinds of social media platforms are going to dominate. Um, and so these are good conversations. I'm looking forward to sharing some of these with parents and a couple digital citizenship uh, events that we're going to be hosting and I'll be participating in, in, in upcoming weeks. And um, my daughter, when we said something about, 
Facebook and we were talking about, you know, an elementary family that was concerned about their daughter and Facebook. And she's like, she's not going to be on Facebook. I mean, this is talking about a third or fourth grader, you know, when she gets to, to middle school. So just the dynamic nature of uh, the landscape that we, we live in. Well, and think about it from this standpoint, schools have had to evolve. It's a guidance is probably a strong word here, but remember it wasn't all that long ago. We were all wringing our hands because kids um, would go onto Facebook and communicate with one, one another or find creepers online. Right. And like that, 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 is still a concern, I think, at least the creeper part of it is, right? Like, that's that's certainly a concern worth worth uh, at least keeping in mind. But there are endless opportunities to connect with people online now. Facebook's just one of them. And, and, and I thought this to be true when it happened. Facebook cleaned up its act in that regard when moms showed up, right? Like, when moms invaded Facebook, they did do a lot of house cleaning here. But, you know, I think that, that uh, and I, to be clear, I'm not blaming Facebook's current problems on moms. Sorry, mom. But um, the other piece of this is is that you know, there is deeper systemic problems here that we have to come to terms with, and I'm not sure if we as a community can do it. I think it has to be Facebook that steps in and thinks about how does the platform work and how are we connected with one another. All right. Well, uh, shout out. We didn't ask Peggy what, what the temperature is. Peggy George um, is in our chat room um, out in, in Arizona Ah, and I just, and Marta is with us from Tegucigalpa, Honduras, and I asked her, what's the temperature? And she said 13. So I had to, to go to Google, do a quick conversion, and that is 55 degrees Fahrenheit. So that's actually, you know, relatively cool. But if you are in our chat room, we welcome you and invite you to chime in with any questions, thoughts that you may have, or directions that you would like to take this. And both Marta and Peggy say they cannot imagine life without Twitter at this point either. Peggy says it was 72 today in Phoenix. So at least some parts of the country are as they should be with weather. We kind of expect that. Well, Jason, where would you like to go next? We uh, we definitely have have a bunch. And, and as usual, I mean, there's no way we're, we're covering all these articles, right? So, no. in fact, Peggy and Marta, if there's anything in particular you definitely want us to get to in the show, you know, let us know because we're not getting to it all tonight. So I, I want to talk about security for a minute, and partially because I have some some personal things to report here. Uh, first and foremost, uh, companies and and hardware and software manufacturers are now rolling out fixes to the so-called meltdown and Spectre vulnerabilities that exist in um, CPUs and other processor hardware. Uh, pretty much every device created in the last 20 years. And I posted a really great article from PC World on January 13th that talks about how much the Meltdown Inspector Fix hurt a Surface book. And I talked to uh, uh, a lot of people on Twitter over the... I had some people back channel me about this, and I had some people connect with me on LinkedIn of all places, which I have never really had people connect with me directly before on there. Uh, Miguel Guin is one of the folks that, that pinged me back and forth because his Surface book updated last week, and he said that his i7 uh, Surface Book was, uh, wasn't impacted. His i5 Surface Book, however, was significantly impacted. So I was very curious. And I actually had three systems this week update uh, with specific fixes for that. One of them is a... Um, Actually, two of them are cloud-ready uh, Chromium OS devices. I used the cloud-ready platform to turn an older laptop, an eight-year-old laptop, seven-year-old laptop, and then I have a desktop computer at home that's a very fast gaming machine that is kind of between operating systems right now, and I installed cloud-ready on it a couple weeks ago just because I knew it would be ridiculously fast. Both of those updated, and the the home or the gaming PC was actually faster after the update, and part of it's because they also rolled out some new support for more modern operating systems, so I think it was out in the wash. The i5 uh, a Chromium OS cloud-ready Neverware uh, a Chromebook clone significantly slowed down, so much so it went from being uh, kind of an easy-to-use daily driver if I wanted to be to something that's that feels very slow, and so we'll see that gets tweaked. But my my story here that's most interesting is that I was very curious based on my conversations with Miguel about um, the um, the Surface Book, which is Microsoft's uh, product. It's about a year and a half old now, and I have one that was uh, my computer upgrade at work. And I've never been totally happy with their performance, even though it has a high-end 
i7 chip and 16 gigabytes of RAM, it always felt a little slow to me. So I installed the updates. I did before and after benchmarking, and the after was a little faster than the before. And so I said to myself, something's off here. Like something, um, something's not where it should be. And so I decided um, on Tuesday to wipe the machine and start over again with a fresh install of Windows. And the most amazing thing happened to me. When it went to do Windows updates, it not only updated to the latest version of Windows, uh, which was the creator's update, it also found 15 different uh, uh, hardware um, uh, uh, updates. And so I went in and downloaded all those, and it turns out that I hadn't been receiving any of the firmware updates which was pretty extraordinary. So um, there was a, a major, major change for me in regards to that. And so I've installed all the updates, and, um, you know, there is uh, 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 it's much faster now. So I don't know if maybe I should have done that in the first place. And I've always been a fan of, you know, if you don't know what's installed, reinstall uh, Windows from scratch. And I think reinstalling Windows from scratch is a good idea once a year anyways, if you're a Windows user or a Mac user for that matter. But that's been my kind of big update uh, in regards to that. So um, it's very interesting that there's a lot of, of talk now about, uh, various software implementations to try to deal with Meltdown Inspector. Um, uh, Android Central reports that Chrome is rolling out something called uh, site isolation, which is in part due to these individual pieces. And so that's uh, um, uh, an interesting way of going about that process. Also, a lot of people have perceived there to be slowdowns, uh, particularly on websites and other groups that might have been impacted by this. Um, and that's rolling out too. So I think it's really important that we keep an eye on this. Uh, if you were Work in context of a tech, uh, your tech director or your power user in your school. My guess is for newer platforms, you're going to start to see both uh, 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 rollouts to the software that helps run your hardware, and then of course Windows, Mac OS, and then also Linux and uh, uh, Chromium OS and Chrome OS for that matter are all going to install updates at one point and. We'll have to see if if the suspected slowdowns become a larger issue. So. Happy to report that my Surface Book is in better shape now only because, and one thing I, I, I mentioned, Wes, that uh, when I reinstalled Windows on my Surface Book, it ended up there were there was nine firmware updates that it found that it didn't find before I reinstalled the operating system. And now that hardware is, is, is singing along ways it was never before, including I was having Wi-Fi connection issues uh, that I was, I had actually put in an initial request to return it for a, a, a replacement a hardware, and those are all all cleaned up after I reinstalled Windows. So wow. it goes back to the message that I, I've, I've always found this to be true of both uh, Windows and Mac OS, but if you're experiencing significant problems, you know, assuming you're smart and you, you back up stuff to a cloud so that's not a big deal, if you wipe your operating system, it's a pain to reinstall the software sometimes, but um, if you know, your data is safe somewhere in the cloud, um, reinstalling the OS is a great option. So those are kind of my adventures in updating to deal with Meltdown and Spectrum and and um, we'd love to hear from you if you're dealing with this, particularly if you're a tech director and you're starting to get hardware and firmware updates from Dell, HP, Lenovo. I've not heard of any being rolled out right now except for Microsoft and except for so software updates um, from, you know, varieties of manufacturers. But uh, we'll see what that looks like in the future. Marta put into the, to the chat, maybe your antivirus didn't allow the updates. Um, it sounds like it did, but that's, we talked about this last week on the show. Microsoft has done something different where you have to have an approved antivirus and a malware program running, and that can be Windows Defender or Security Essentials. But if you don't have that, then your registry, there's a special registry key that needs to get changed in order to, to get the update. So I'm, I'm real interested in tracking with that as well, Jason. We've got only a couple users, um, but they're both administrators at our school who are on service books and we've had some different, you know, problems and issues with them. So I'm thrilled to hear about the, the improvement. I will go so far as a tech director to say that re-imaging machines, whether they're computer lab machines, they're shared laptops or they're, you know, individual laptops, it's an essential part of security hygiene today. Yeah. And it's really the only way it's like a nuclear option. I mean, we were doing this back in, you know, 
the, the late nineties with ghost in, in the windows 95 computer lab when I was at rush elementary in Lubbock, Texas, you know, and it would take a little while, but we'd be able to you know, reinstall everything from scratch. And then you'd make a pristine image, save it to the Novell server. Remember that that brings back some nightmares for some of us, the Novell client. And, uh, then you'd, you'll use a floppy disk to, to start it up and then you'd pull the image, et cetera. But, you know, as you had stuff installed and, and things like that, it was the best way to clean up. So today, uh, it's really not, not something that's just for the enterprise. It's something for individuals as well. And so, like Jason said, being able to have your stuff backed up and, and restoring from the cloud is something we need to do with our smartphones, with our tablets, as well as our other devices. Um, I will chime in with one other security article, and this comes from Android Central on January 15th. Oh, no, sorry. This is the, that was the, the, the Chrome isolation. This is Ars Technica on January 16th. Google Chrome extensions with half a million downloads found to be malicious. And so uh, we've definitely talked about before on the show differences in ecosystems with iOS having really a tighter and, and more carefully gate-kept um, app community and and Google with with the Google Play Store being a bit more of the Wild West. We definitely hear more stories about there being some some Google, um, you know, actually not not Google, but it's really more Android Play Store things that are you know hijacking or you know that have some certainly adware, but sometimes even malware. Uh, this is the most ex- extensive. Um, Chrome extension. And, and it's important here too, to distinguish between vulnerabilities, which are hypothetical, which are identified issues that need to be patched. Um, and that's where the Spectre and the Meltdown vulnerabilities fit in. Cause they're still today on, um, you know, the eighth, what is it? 17th of January. We still don't have anything in the wild happening with, with those in terms of people ha- being hacked, but we definitely uh, do in this case. And so in this article, it talks about, you know, how this uh, one extension, it's called change HTTP request header. Um, they, they did some packet analysis, taking a look at the spike in outbound network traffic and discovered that this Chrome extension was uh, infecting a machine and uh, surreptitiously visiting uh, advertising related links. And so, uh, brings up several different issues. Number one, you know, yes, Chrome is great and Chromebooks are great and they boot quickly, uh, but they're not immune. And one of the biggest opportunities for something that is malicious to come into your Chrome system, whether it's your Chrome browser on your on your Mac or your PC or it's on a Chromebook, is for extensions. And so one of the things we found is really important working with users is to troubleshoot issues especially if it's with a browser, is to see what extensions are on. And just go ahead and turn all the extensions off. It's a little bit like booting in safe mode if you're working with a PC to say, let's let's boot up without all this extra stuff, see how things are doing, and then we'll add them you know, bit by bit. Um, there's a popular extension called Grammarly, which <clears throat> we found for our student information system in terms of entering comments into the system actually caused issues. And so we encouraged our teachers to have that turned off and then and once they were done putting the comments in, then they could turn it on to, you know, be able to get grammar tips and stuff like that. The second thing I would say on this is um, it's important to um, what was my second point? I don't remember my second point. So what do you think, Jason? If, were, were you using change HTTP request header? And oh, that was it. It's uh, it's uh, having um, intrusion detection on your network uh, back in the. Late 1990s, I get no, it would have been, actually would have been early 2000s, I guess. Um, I was at Texas Tech University, and part of what they were doing at the time was setting up their network with intrusion detection so that as soon as you connected via Wi-Fi, you would be port scanned, and basically the network would be able to see if you were spewing anything that looks suspicious or malicious. And if you were, you'd be quarantined and said, hey, download antivirus. You need to clean your machine up before you come on the rest of our network and either, you know, suck bandwidth or contribute to somebody's, you know, botnet or infect other machines. And so I don't know how many school networks are there yet. That is something that we're using um, a discovery tool that is uh, being able to just go out to every single IP address and identify, you know, what it is and whether it's in our inventory and uh, we're using it to identify some 
things, this was even today, that we weren't necessarily aware were, were running on our network. And I think that will, will continue to be a security best practice for schools and other organizations, making sure that you're segmenting your network. And ideally, you have a way to find out when something malicious comes on your network. And then you can, you know, do something to help that user uh, hopefully get their system patched and fixed. And definitely just like we got the, the flu going around. We don't need all these sick people running around getting other people sick. Same thing goes for computers. So um, have you run into any kind of Chrome extension issues, Jason, on either your own personal systems or, or others that you work on? Uh, the answer is no, but um, I also, uh, the one piece of advice I would also add to that is that something I've started doing recently is I go in and check my Chrome extensions every month or so to make sure that what is running is what I want running. Something you may not know about, this is true of Chrome extensions, Firefox extensions, Microsoft Edge, Edge extensions, is that it, it's the extension engine is amazing, right? You can do so many cool things with browsers by adding extensions to it. Uh, Chrome and Firefox are really both leaders in regards to this. But I think in the experimental phase, you may end up with a bunch of junk that you just don't need. And whether it's, it's sniffing your information or not, it's also slowing down your browser. That's particularly true if you're like logging on to a profile on your Chromebook that was pulled from a desktop environment, and it's pulling all sorts of extra extensions that you don't really ever use. And so uh, this was recommended earlier on our program, but Extensity, Extensity, I think is the name of it, yeah, that's it. Um, is a great extension that allows you to keep um, only the extensions and applications on that you want to keep on, otherwise it turns them off. And so uh, that's one way to help protect extensions from slowing things down. And and then you know what you install just because a speaker at a conference or, you know, some some dude that blogs, uh, me and Wes included, they tell you that something is amazing. You know, do your due diligence and look at reviews and see who created those particular snippets of code. But, you know, uh, it's it's always user beware in these scenarios, and I think that's especially true when you're asking an external piece of software to plug in to your architecture. All right. Um, and Peggy has uh, put into the chat that she has had to turn off her ad blocker several times, and, and yes, absolutely. That just, you know, happened last week with a, a, a teacher that I was working with, and something weird was happening and, and we just, you know, let's turn off the ad blocker and see how that works. And yep. sometimes that's it. That's, that's the main thing. But um, a lot of extensions, you know, they can slow things down and it's uh, it's part of troubleshooting. Yep. Absolutely. Jason, so I think I would like to make sure we get to some of the more unusual uh, predicted topics. Um, I, I sent out a tweet today with a uh, picture of a lobster and a robot and a uh, supposed to be AI. So it was the robotic hand shaking the human hand. Um, but I said that we're going to talk about uh, sentience, robots, uh, and technology ethics. And so there are two articles that I want to basically connect that you know, I've been thinking about, and the second one really was the first, the first one that that came to mind. So I guess I'll start there. Uh, if you don't listen to Hidden Brain, which is an NPR podcast, and I don't know if I can pronounce the host's name correctly, um, and I need to probably practice that one, uh, but it is fantastic. It is really a uh, thought-provoking podcast, um, talking a lot about brain research and things that we find out about how the brain works. And so they were rerunning over the holidays some of their more famous, or not famous, but, well, maybe they are, more popular episodes. And this one's actually from the summer. It's a July 10th, 2017 episode, and it's called Can Robots Teach Us What It Means to Be Human? And it's interesting to me, sometimes you'll see headlines like this where the actual headline in the header or in the in the title bar of, of the browser tab or window is different. And so in this case, it is the, the title bar says, could you kill a robot? Um, and so it's, it's talking about some really fascinating research with a uh, researcher who's at the, the MIT Media Lab, uh, Shankar, how am I going to say it? Vedantam? He is, he is the host of Hidden Brain. And so anyway, he was interviewing this, this, um, researcher. And part of what they're finding is if you, we tend to anthropomorphize lots of objects. We will, you know, we're not here where AI has become sentient and, you know, very human-like, but, you know, we have little dinosaurs being sold 
and you know we give them names and they have little robotic abilities to turn and to act you know very very lifelike and their research was showing that if they gave people hammers and said smash this you know this robot after they've given it a, especially given it a name but they've observed it you know acting like it's alive people are very hesitant to do it it actually brings up some really interesting issues about empathy and it said that you know the people who might be most willing to smash these robots um, maybe those that would would uh, exhibit the least amount of empathy for for fellow human beings. The other article, which you know you might say, why does that connect? Is a Washington Post article uh, more recently from January the thirteenth, twenty eighteen, and it says another country has banned boiling live lobsters. Some scientists wonder why. And so the debate here is whether or not lobsters, uh, crustaceans, pain, and there's some really interesting questions here that, that are philosophical, but they're tied to technology because, you know, when do we ascribe rights to things that are not human? In the Hidden Brain episode, they're talking about, you know, dogs and cats and other kinds of animals. And so there are limits, you know, to the ways that you can treat a dog or a cat. You can't torture it. You can't, you know, do just horrific things. Yes, you have the ability to, you know, put your animal to sleep, but there are actually some legal protections that extend to, to pets and to other animals in, in the United States. And perhaps, you know, I don't know what the laws are on this in other countries. Um, similarly, lobsters, you know, they could be tossed in, into a, a, a boiling pot of water. Uh, I can tell you some pretty good stories about visiting some friends in Maine and having some pretty good meals that, uh, focused, focused on that. But anyway, France and these, and not, it wasn't France. What was this? Uh, it was Switzerland, and which is not, you know, a big country for uh, for farming farming lobsters. But they are, you know, deciding that that is that is an inhumane thing to do. So, Jason, do you uh, have any guidance or thoughts on the whole idea of sentience? Was that ever a debate topic that that came up, or um, you know, what 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 are what's your take on on all of this in terms of of AI? Because I guess I'm I'm thinking this is just a pretty intriguing philosophical topic, but as machines get more lifelike and as we create robots and toys as well that um, are at some, at some point, if we, if, and I think, I think we can believe Ray Kurzweil. I think we're going here. He says, we're going to, we're going to be here by 2029 um, become issues, you know, do, should robots have, have rights at some level? It's a it's, it is a fascinating question. I think part of the challenge. I don't know. I'll ask the ask the chat, Jason. Conversations later because it is a. If we don't, then we're gonna like it, it's it. it <laughs> if the robots become too charming, we might not be able to you know put them out to the scrap heap, right? And so, um, or we we might over trust in them. Um, when you know if if cognizance is reached on the robots' part, man, this is already getting so geeky. But um, it really does create a, a you know a really challenging ethical issue and. That's where, and Wes and I talk about this a lot, but, you know, you don't need to get into a three or four day long robot discussion to start peeking into the ethical implications of these things. But you can start with, you know, uh, basic questions, whether or not robots have feelings, for example, and there's not enough in our, our decided about these technologies yet for um, uh, humans to not have a significant say in that. So I'm, I'm still looking at this pretty literally. And, you know, my wife and I have talked a lot about, uh, driverless cars and, um, you know, arguably robots, right? And, um, you know, we, we talk about what happens the first time that someone is killed by a driverless car and inevitably that will happen soon in that game. Who's responsible for that, right? Oh, and, you know, that's the kind of thing that, um, you know, if you haven't decided how that works or, or things like liability, that's going to create uh, conundrums that we might not be able to find our way, way out of. And so, yeah, I, I, I find it all quite fascinating. And I think it's also um, intriguing that, um, you know, people are looking at this in terms of, existing ethical conundrums that we have. And so, yeah, it's, it's, it's a fascinating topic. I'm not sure if I have much insight other than to say, man, do we have a lot of things to think about as this technology evolves much faster than we're creating good ethical foundations to be able to engage with it. We really do. And, and part of what this uh, Hidden Brain episode talks about as well is, 
you know, we might not just ascribe rights to robots because of our, our perceived need to protect them, but it also might be to protect the individuals who might be doing them harm. In other words, if somebody was going to, you know, be kicking a robot, destroying one, you know, being very um, brutal with it, you know, oh. or with a toy, I mean, that, that can have impact on them as well. It makes you think of video games and first-person shooters and things like that. Um, I, my last little thought on this is I really think that, we ought to find ways to bring toy hacking into school. And yeah. I've had a chance to go up to Vermont a couple times in 2013 and then this past summer with my wife to the Create, Make, and Learn conference. Shout out to Lucy, who does such an amazing, she's tech-savvy girl on Twitter. She does such an awesome job organizing that. And I wasn't able to, I, I wasn't, I haven't really gotten a chance to do that where you'll have people bring toys, but then have sensors and motors and, you know, be able to basically hack the toys and, and get them to either sense or move or, or interact in some way. And so this is a personal challenge for, for myself as I talk out loud about this is I think, you know, when we want to engage um, more young ladies in, uh, coding and STEM activities, uh, we can't just offer more math classes that are the same as the old math classes. We can't just, you know, offer classes that are, you know, just, just straight up, hey, let's learn to code because it's cool. You know, some of the research and some of the things I've seen, you know, show that, you know, and this isn't just something for girls, this appeals to guys too, you know, are interested in things like improving the world, solving a problem, making a prosthetic leg for a shelter dog that, you know, lost its limb. Um, and so anyway, thinking about the ways that STEM gets brought into different things. And I think toy hacking is something that, you know, might appeal to a, a broader audience of kids who might not think, yeah, I want to sign up for the, the coding club. And so maybe my wife and I next week start our after school scratch club. And, um, I'm going to work on, on pushing myself with some of the, the ways that you can connect scratch code to real objects in terms of, of moving them and getting them to do some things. And so um, anyway, I, I think all of that connects because uh, Rachel, our eighth grader, is, is in a uh, trimester course right now for robotics, and she's almost done with the, the second challenge. And it's, it's, she asked me the other day, she said, Dad, is there, are there jobs to do, you know, doing this in the future? And I'm like, Yes, honey, there's a lot of future in folks that are going to work with robotic systems and algorithms and, you know, ways to uh, to solve problems and to to use code to do that. And so there's the philosophical level, which we can kind of talk about and will be a practical issue for for lawyers and ethicists as, as well as perhaps the rest of us. Um, but then there's also uh, a real practical side to all of that. So definitely, if nothing else, a good writing prompt for you to, you know, take on. Absolutely so. All right, where to next? We got about ten minutes till the top of the hour. Um, let me do one other that something. Actually, never mind. Let's save say this. Oh, Jason is having a few bandwidth issues, and I did confirm that in the chat with uh, with Marta and Peggy. So I am not sure if the Missoula, Montana uh, internet bandwidth is uh, is giving him trouble, or sometimes when we're having those bandwidth issues, you don't know if it, it's yourself and. He's popping back in. So there he is. He's back. What's the next topic? I'm so mysterious. Um, I was going to uh, – actually, I'm not going to repeat what I repeated because I changed my mind in the middle and went somewhere else. I like to do some CES, uh, CES updates. Two great articles out of CES uh, from last week, CES, the Consumer Electronics Show, uh, live from Las Vegas. And the two articles I want to focus on first – Chrome Unboxed has an excellent video on Razor's effort towards Project Linda. And we were first reported to Project Linda last week, but Project Linda is the notion of taking an Android phone, slipping it into a clamshell that has a screen and a laptop keyboard, and turning that phone into a full-size laptop. And they have a wonderful video. Chrome Unboxed, by the way, wonderful website for those of you interested in Chrome OS and Chrome devices. But it shows you what it looks like when the Razor phone pops into to the keyboard shell and then pops up a desktop style system where you can then run all of your Android applications. And so I want to mention that uh, that particular piece. But I also want to mention a really great article 
from um, Android Police from 16 January 2018, or as Leo Laporte calls them, the Android Popo. But Android Police is uh, uh, is reporting that one of their their uh, writers, David uh, Rudrick, reports that um, he was able to use his uh, Chromebook. Um, I'm sorry, his Pixelbook, which is the newest Google uh, uh, Chromebook hardware, very high-end, expensive hardware, and basically did everything he needed to do throughout CES um, on that platform. He felt it was a, a extraordinary platform and now sees the point of Chromebooks. And not only did he talk about how great it was to be able to utilize this platform as his primary driver, but he talked about when he needed a very spe- uh, specific um, uh, functionality that, that was missing from the Chrome environment, he was able to download it utilizing a Google Play Store Android app so that he was able to do his job pretty efficiently. And I got to say, I'm probably Chrome OS in some way or another, whether it's an official one on a Chromebook like I'm on right now or at work. I use a desktop uh, with Cloud Ready um, from Neverware 80% of the time now, and I do just fine. Right now, I'm a very web-based job, and I don't do a lot with specific, specific applications. I've been able to recreate all of that either online or with Android apps. But it really is a powerful platform, and if you put the hardware behind it, if you have a, a decent chip and enough RAM, it really can produce uh, a really high-end results. And so, uh, at some point, Wes and I are going to talk about Chromebooks for an entire show. But um, you know, it, it, I thought that article really well articulated what I've been experiencing as a Chrome user. And as I mentioned, after I got back from Egypt in November, I took our family 11-inch Dell Chromebook as my only laptop to Egypt, uh, did all of my presentations and workshops on it, and thankfully did bring a VGA adapter because uh, even in their auditorium, I mean, VGA was, was what they had everywhere. That was what we had at our school, you know, everywhere a couple of years ago. We're, we're kind of catching up with <clears throat> HDMI in terms of uh, replacing with projectors and TVs and things like that, but it is, um, it's great. And I, um, <laughs> have experienced this and continue to from both the, the tech director standpoint in terms of support, you know, the differences between Chrome and other platforms. I think that it is challenging for any of us and it's because of baby duck syndrome. Look that up on Wikipedia. That's where we get imprinted with a particular you know, platform, whether that's I use the smart board and smart notebook and I can't shift out of that or, you know, I'm using my Mac, I'm using my Windows. I I will say, you know, my philosophy for a long time has been I I love powerful tools that just work. And I use that a lot of times to say why I love Mac so much, you know, and especially with respect to Windows and the comparative complexity that I perceived in doing, you know, Similar kinds of tasks, especially things that involve graphic design and and page layout and things like that. But it really is a great thing to see Chrome advancing. And and I don't have this in the show notes, but this last Monday, this week, I was out in eastern Oklahoma in Stillwell at the Marietta School with our uh, Story Chasers team and helped about 40 teachers create ebooks on their laptops. Now, a lot of them were on a MacBook laptop using the Chrome browser, um, but this works in Chrome. Book Creator has come to the Chrome platform. And it was not only exciting to see that, you know, happen in action, but, but the way that they've done that, where you as the teacher have a shared library and you have a code, much like you do with Google Classroom, where you give that to the students and then they all create a book and it's in your library. And so I've done a lot of these over the years with teachers and students on iPads, but those ebooks are out on their devices. And then it becomes the, this puzzle of how do you get your book to me? Well, when we were doing it in the cloud, all of those books were in the library and it may sound trite, but it was a little bit magical. And so I'm quite excited about that. And we'll be sharing, um, you know, I am sharing that with uh, not only our high school teachers in a project we're, we're doing right now that's a, seniors are making picture books for pre-K kids. Um, but I've been talking with some of our middle school English teachers as well. So definitely exciting. And I would just say we helping teachers you know, not as much even students, but faculty, staff, teachers, how are we helping shift people's perceptions of what a platform can do and what its capabilities are? Sometimes it's telling that little story, just like this journalist was telling his story from CES. Uh, A friend of mine who's recently taken over as a, a tech director said that the previous tech director 
had just told everyone Chromebooks were horrible, they couldn't work for testing, they were just useless, and the only thing they needed to get were, were Macs. And while I love Macs, I'm using two today, this is, you know, show notes are here, and I'm using my wife's Mac to make the call, there's a ton of stuff we can do with the Chromebook. And so if the Chromebook can do 80 to 90% of, of what we need to do, are we really using our funds in the most you know, financially responsible way um, to, to purchase systems that essentially are overkill for the kinds of function we have? I think that's a, a pretty important question to consider. And it's important in the context of what you were talking about, Jason, with, with uh, Meltdown and Spectre, because if these systems are crippling older systems, the refresh cycles that we have in schools as well as other organizations may need to accelerate because we may need to buy new hardware. And so if we're doing that, I think we better look closely at Chrome and watch these kinds of initiatives that we've been talking about on the show, especially those ones where they're trying to, you know, allow different kinds of apps to run within the Chrome environment. Right. Absolutely. And, and, you know, I, and again, we'll, we'll definitely come up with this notion uh, soon of, of talking about the merits of Chrome in, in a longer show, but, you know, I would be absolutely remiss if I didn't say that, you know, we can't, we can't spend our time saying that this platform is always better than another because the bottom line is is that probably great classrooms are using two or three different plas- platforms in addition to whatever your kids are carrying in their pockets. And we are in a multi-platform world, right? Like that's one of the reasons why I think that I enjoy being an Android phone user, a Chromebook mobile person, and then I've got a, a, an iMac at work, and then that I switch off with a Windows machine. I like to be versed in all of those pieces, but also, um, you know, depending on what I'm doing, they all, you know, have their advantages and disadvantages. And if you're doing a lot of interesting things in your classroom related to that, I... I would think that it's probably not Chromebooks, it's probably not Windows laptops, it's probably not Mac laptops, it's probably not iPads, it's probably not Android phones, it's probably not uh, iPhones, it's all of the above, right? We need platforms software-wise that can be on all phones, all tablets, all laptops, all mobile devices so that we can you know, make students efficient no matter what device they can have in their hands or afford. Absolutely. Well, I think we probably better geek of the week it. We're about at the uh, top of the hour. I'll go first and then let you uh, look, close out, Jason. Uh, two quick ones. <laughs> the first one, I hope I'm not struck by lightning sharing this, although McGill Gulen, lover of all things Microsoft now, will be excited. Uh, Microsoft has a launcher for Android and for others who are either new to Android or foreign to Android, you know, unlike the iPhone, you can... Um, decide what you want your, you know, graphical interface to look and feel like, and and they're called launchers. And the one that came with this Moto phone, um, you know, I I used initially uh, Tommy Snyder, who uh, works with us halftime in technology at our school, told me about the Nova launcher, which is a pretty powerful one that's flexible and you can do a lot with. But this one is a a Microsoft launcher. So I've only been using it a couple days, but it's free. Uh, It actually feels a little more iPhone-ish in terms of some of the the features. Um, But uh, it was kind of cool to to use that. And then the next thing is just the YouTube Safety Center. Um, I'm continuing to work on a website, digital citizenship site, digsit.us. Uh, getting, you know, resources together for things we're doing with parents as well as with teachers and students at our school around themes of digital citizenship. And I just, I think that uh, YouTube's abilities that it offers not only schools in terms of limiting content, but families, uh, restricted mode, special apps, um, you know, resources for parents, privacy and safety settings. It's it's important to know all this stuff. And I'm going to be sharing some parent uh, parent workshops here in the next uh, month and YouTube is going to be one of the, the main topics. And so I was glad to find this resource center that they have. So Jason, I think, are you, you're, you must be doing some kind of screen sharing. Cause I am screen sharing too. Yes. Yeah, I, like, I want you, I want you to take a hard look at yourself, Dr. Fryer. So, um, so I want to share something that if you've been on social media in the last week, this has already smacked you in the face, but I was so impressed with this as a digital tool. Uh, the Google arts and culture app has released a, an experiment where you can take a selfie of yourself and then it finds comparisons with art in, in, in the larger cultural phenomenon of, of art. And I will share, I'm going to my Facebook page here. This is my, um, 
my lookalike, uh, there was a much older dude that was number one, but I took an early morning selfie the other day, and this is what it matched up. And it's, you know, I less less curly of hair, and maybe my beard is slightly more kept, but pretty legit and close. And what I love about this particular tool is it really is an AI experiment, right? Like you, it's, by the way, on I, iOS and Android, and you have to download the Google Arts and Culture app and then dig a little round into it. It's not as obvious as one would think, but take a selfie, and then it does this. And I will say, of the probably 50 people that shared these on my Facebook feed in the last 72 hours, they've been, you know, fairly accurate. And so I've been pretty impressed with, um, you know, what this looks like and 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 uh, the impressive technology behind it. But this is the Google Arts and Culture app. Uh, really well done um, uh, Google experiment that kind of shows off the power of AI. And, you know, see this as scary or not, the, the bottom line is that if you are not um, uh, at least acknowledging that that your image can be a kind of useful phenomenon in um, you know, matching, right? You have a very unique face, whether you know it or not. And every time Facebook is telling you, hey, is this picture so-and-so so you can tag it, that is artificial intelligence at work. So, it may be a gimmick, but I do think it shows off the power of these particular technologies. That's the Google Arts and Culture app, and um, I put in two links this week. One article that, that sends you off to links in both the iOS and, 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 and Android Play Store, and also some notes that it has rocketed this app to the top of free app lists. So you can probably find it there as well. So Google Arts and Culture. Fantastic. Well, thank you all so much for joining us for the EdTech Situation Room, especially thanks and a big shout out to Marta and Peggy joining us live in our chat room. We are here on most Wednesday nights at 9 p.m. Central, 8 p.m. Mountain. What did we say the UTC was? It's not 1400. It was something else. 3 a.m. UTC. Okay, so 0300 UTC. And uh, you can catch all these links at edtechsr.com slash links. Everybody have a great week, and we'll hope to see you next week for more discussion of the week's technology news with an educational lens. Good night. Thank you.